Okay, we are in 2 Corinthians, 2 Corinthians chapter 7, and as verse 2 begins a new paragraph, and it's picking back up the argument or the appeal that Paul was making that I think he left off in 613, 613, there was a such a, a major interruption in Paul's thought between 613 and 72 that some scholars have suggested that the other material was inserted from somewhere else. And so you can read long arguments about that. But current scholarship and the, and the scholars that I've been reading argue for its authenticity in the place where it is now. But you can see how somebody would get that idea. Let me just show you how this whole section about separation was kind of a long parenthetical discussion that that interrupted his flow of thought. But here it says, Paul is appealing to them. Well, let's just start with verse 11. Our mouth has spoken freely to you, O Corinthians. Our heart is opened wide. You are not restrained by us, but you are restrained in your own affections. Now in like exchange, I speak as to children, open wide to us also. Now flip over to verse 2 of chapter 7. Make room for us in your hearts. Do you see how you could actually take that section on separation and pull it out and it would flow perfectly? So that's why some people thought, well, that's what we should do. But others have argued that Paul's stopping his flow in warning them about idolatry fits also within the context of the thinking that we find here in 2 Corinthians and in 1 Corinthians. So we, the Bible is the way it is. Let's interpret it for what we have in front of us. <laughs> okay? Now, but I did want you to see that, that you could just kind of follow, pick up the flow. It's a personal appeal. Paul is personally appealing to them that they would open their hearts to him as an apostle. And... That has been going on through almost the entire epistle. So, 7-2. Make room for us in your hearts. We wronged no one. We corrupted no one. We took advantage of no one. So, Paul here is using, by the way, uh, the we. And if you read down verse 3, I, he goes to I. And then verse 4, it's I. And so he goes back and forth with we and I. And we've talked before about whether the, the we is an epistolatory plural. Is that a real concept, Dick? Epistolatory plural? We have an English major over here who's better. Oh! Oh, an editorial we? Okay. All right, so... You, if I write that way sometimes. In my case, why would I be saying we in one of my critical issues commentary articles? Probably, I see, the old school was this way. Old school, that some of you know, nobody here is old enough to remember old school, are they, Dick? <laughs> I'm going to get in trouble here, yeah. Okay, old school was in a technical or scholarly paper, you'd never use the personal pronoun I. In fact, you'd get your paper turned back to you if you did that. So then you would, so if there was a necessity for someone to refer to themselves, they would say this present writer or this reporter, or this student, or whoever it is, and not use the I. Now, the conventions of language change for one reason or another, and I only had one professor in seminary, and that was in the early 90s, who even suggested we ought to lay off the personal pronoun I, and he didn't make it a requirement. But do you know what they did make a requirement? And you could not use gender-specific pronouns, all right? So you could talk about I, but you could not talk about he. And so that was the way it was in seminary. Okay. Because in England, where I came from originally, we have the royal we, which is used in uh, authoritative statements 
and so forth. So that may be part of it, too. The royal we. Okay. All right. Thank you. It's interesting to hear from England. All right. Make room for us in your hearts. We wrong no one. Oh, I was talking about my own procedure. In writing a theological article, I might use the personal pronoun I, but I try to not so much. And if you say we, in my mind, I'm crediting the fact that a lot of people are helping me. You know, that a lot of people are helping me edit. People are helping me think of the ideas, like Keith and Dick. Almost everything I write, two of them have a hand in it. So there is a legitimate we, and it could be Paul's thinking that way too. Maybe Titus or somebody is in his mind that should get some credit. But here's what he says. We make room for us in your hearts. We wrong no one. So it may very well be an apostolic we that he has other persons in mind, or it may just be an editorial plural. Make room for us in your hearts. In your hearts, by the way, is not in the Greek. It's... Is your Bible in italic? Anybody? Yeah, so it's not in the Greek. We wronged. The word for wrong there is adikeo, would mean to do damage or harm. And then corrupted means destroyed or depraved. And we took advantage. That can be translated exploit. So... What Paul is saying is that he really doesn't deserve to be treated as badly as he has been by the Corinthians. He came with honest and good motives. He treated them absolutely properly. He loved them as a father would love his own children, as he said in 1 Corinthians. And he taught them the true gospel, and he cared for their souls. And when he left, they turned against him. And they turned against him by listening to super apostles who claimed to be more spiritual or have better visions or had better experiences or had better eloquence than Paul did. So now Paul is appealing to them to open their hearts to him. And the reason he's making this appeal is that he realizes that if they don't open their hearts to him, they open their hearts to the false teachers and that would not be in their best interest. And all of the verbs here are the first person, heiress, plural. The three verbs, wrong, corrupted, took advantage, likely refer to things that the false apostles have done. Okay? So they took advantage of them and wronged them, and they listened to those guys. Paul didn't, and they didn't want to listen to him. So they're being rather fickle, and there's some problems that need to be addressed. Let's look up some cross-references. Why don't we go into the second row? Sam looks like a likely candidate here. <laughs> Numbers 16, 15, 1 Samuel 12, 3. Brian, 1 Samuel 12, 3. Jeremy, Matthew 10 and verse 40. Ben, Acts 20:33, and Patrick, 2 Corinthians 12:14 to 18, and Jenny, 1 Thessalonians 2, 3 through 6. Numbers 15:16. There is to be one law and one ordinance for you and for the alien who sojourns with you. 16:15. Then Moses became very angry and said to the Lord, Do not regard their offering. I have not taken a single donkey from them, nor have I done harm to any of them. Yeah, so there we go. Moses, Moses made the same kind of a plea that he hadn't harmed anybody. But yet, people were turning against Moses. There were a number of events in the Pentateuch where people turned against Moses, where they're not. They just said, well, why is Moses speaking for God? And Korah did that, and he ended up dropping down into the earth with his family. Okay, Brian? 1 Samuel 12:3 Here I am witness against me before the Lord and before his anointed whose ox have I taken or whose donkey have I taken or whom have I cheated whom have I oppressed or from whose hand have I received any bribe with which to blind my eyes I will restore it to you 
Okay, so the same kind of appeal. They're appealing to, appealing to the people uh, that there'd been good leadership, godly leadership, honest leadership, and the people didn't like it. That happens sometimes. I went, heard John MacArthur telling his own story at a pastor's conference, and he, I don't know how many years back this was, probably a lot of years, but he's been there, what, 40 years in the same church, something like that. But there was a time when the, the entire, almost the entire church turned against him. And they had this big meeting, and they were talking about John MacArthur, and half of them thought he was too strict, and the other half thought he was too liberal. <laughs> and and they, this was wrong, and that was wrong, and the other thing was wrong, and you know, you need faithfully served. And, but he managed to ride out that storm, and, and uh, the Lord's still using him. Okay, the, the, ne- the next passage. Matthew 10:40. He who receives you receives me, and he who receives me receives the one who sent me. Okay. He who receives me receives the one who sent me. So Paul was sent by the Lord, and if they don't receive Paul, then they may very well not be receiving the Lord, and that would be very bad. Okay, and then Acts 20:33. I coveted no one's silver or gold or apparel. Okay, Paul said the same thing. He, he treated people right when he was talking to the Ephesians. 2 Corinthians 12, 14 to 18. Here for this third time I am ready to come to you, and I will not be a burden to you, for I do not seek what is yours, but you. For children are not responsible to save up for their parents, but parents for their their children. I will most gladly spend and be expended for your souls. If I love you more, am I to be loved less? But be that as it may, I did not burden you myself. Nevertheless, crafty fellow that I am, I took you in by deceit. Certainly, I have not taken advantage of you through any of those whom I have sent to you, have I? I urged Titus to go, and I, and I sent the brother with him. Titus did not take any advantage of you, did he? Did we not conduct ourselves in the same spirit and walk in the same steps? Yes. So, that's uh, one more. Jenny has one, too. 1 Thessalonians 2, 3 through 6. For our exhortation does not come from error or impurity, but by way of deceit. But just as we have been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel, so we speak, not as pleasing men, but God who examines our hearts. For we never came with flattering speech, as you know, nor with a pretext for greed. God is witness. Nor did we seek glory from men, either from you or from others, even though as apostles of Christ we might have asserted our authority. Okay. So Paul's testimony and that of other leaders God raised up in, in the history of Israel was that they treated the people properly. They kept away from greed. They didn't conduct themselves in such a way where it could be said they were trying to take advantage of people or trying to use their religion as a self-aggrandizement. Um, and they stayed away from pride, trying to exalt themselves, and, and such things as that. So we definitely need, um, anyone in Christian leadership needs God to um, keep us on the straight and narrow as far as these things. This is just the way it ought to be. The way Paul conducted himself is the way all of us should. And may God give us grace to actually do so. How do we get rid of bad motives? Uh, it's a good question. <laughs> Let's do some application here uh, now. So I'm going to open it up for discussion. How, how, let me ask a question and see if we can't think of an answer to it. Given that this is correct, that we should have good motives and we should treat people right and so on, how does one guard against that? Or maybe I should ask this question, how come it seems so rare how come we have so many cases um, in the news of ministers exploiting people? Or, um, you know, what's, why is it not more restrained? 
Why would a minister feel like he could use the offerings of the church to buy two or three jet airplanes or something like that? Has anybody got an opinion on that? Oh, I thought of two things. Um, the verse, Proverbs 4.23, keep the heart with all diligence, for out of it arise the issues of life. That's the old King James. And then secondly, there should probably be more accountability, more okay. arrangements for being accountable. Okay. All right. The need for accountability and a need to guard your heart. Go ahead, Troy. I think in the day and age we live in, I think most of these people are in apostasy. They aren't even Christians. They're taking advantage of the flock. However, there may be true Christians out there that are doing immoral things, as you know, everybody can sin. But I think if you look around, you look at the biggest scandals we have, in my opinion, these people don't even seem to really preach the gospel. They don't, they don't okay. seem to be Christians even. So. so. Okay, that's an interesting thing. People, is it possible for people to gain authority? authoritative positions in a religious uh, or in a Christian church and not truly be a Christian. Yeah, that's possible. And if you're not a Christian, you don't have any grace working in your life. And the thing that keeps any of us from sin is the grace of God. Wouldn't we say so? But by the grace of God, there go I. That's not a Bible verse, but it's a good sentiment. (laughs) All right. Yes, uh, what about greed? When I was uh, searching for churches and really diligently seeking out God, uh, one of the places I met was where, I don't know if it was really Oral Roberts, but he came and visited this church, and he had all of us lift up our wallets and have our wallets blessed by God. Now, I'm just saying super, <laughs> superficially, you know, Blessing the wallet, that wasn't a a big deal. But the thing is, internally, I was so convicted by my own unworthiness. And that's why I was searching out all these churches. And it wasn't until I came here where we actually exposit the Bible and I can trust the Bible. I don't know how that relates, but it's like greed is something where it's a part of me because I'm human but when I can get out of that and give to others, you know, it, it's difficult as a human being. I can't do it. That's why I need the grace of the Lord Jesus. Amen. Okay. We should emphasize, I think the more we emphasize the things that bring grace to us, okay, like the Word of God and prayer and fellowship and the things that we keep talking about, the more we actually change and... Leaders, elders, should themselves be constantly under the means of grace, knowing that if God isn't doing a work of grace, we're not getting more like Jesus. Yes. Uh, I, I mean, to me, it just seems uh, logical that if these pastors are truly saved, aren't they automatically under conviction? I mean, how can they continue? Yeah, I don't know. That, uh, you would think there'd be more conviction. You would, you know, you would think that. Any person would realize that they have to know that somebody can fire them. Not only do we need to know somebody can fire us, we need to know that somebody will fire us if it's the right thing to do. In other words, no one should be in awe of somebody's status. Okay? Because as soon as people are in awe of status, then you let the people get by with murder because you don't, you think they're too important. Yes? I think when they preach the prosperity uh, gospel, they have to look prosperous. That's good. Yeah, I've heard that before. I, I, I actually heard they were questioning a guy that had millions of dollars who was a preacher, and he says, well, I've got to be a good example for the flock. <laughs> okay. One thing we have to remember, too, is that dog bites man is not news. Man bites dog is. I would say that the vast majority of our pastors are faithful. I'd say for every charlatan or Elmer Gantry, there's probably a thousand that are unsung. Oh, okay, that's true. We don't have we don't have all the data. God has His people flung far and wide all over the world, and He has faithful ones too. Did Dick have something? Okay, one thing. And then go to verse three here. When we put together a, a deacon's board a little while back, one of the first things that I remember Sam and Norm and 
whoever else started sending a few things around were some documents and some teachings from a number of people that focused on the concept of service. And I think that to the degree that people have in leadership have gotten hooked on the fact that uh, it's cool to be a leader, which in many cases it's not, at least it's not a lot of fun sometimes, the fact is if we're appointed to the role, it's a role of service. Amen. Good. All right. Now let's go to verse 3 then. I do not speak to condemn you, for I have said before that you are in our hearts to die together and to live together. To die together and to live together. Now, condemn there is katakrisis, and it means a verdict of guilt. A verdict of guilt. So Paul is not saying this to pronounce his guilty verdict on the entire church. Because if we remember, they had responded to the severe letter. Probably next week we'll talk about Titus's came back and with a good report. It comes in here somewhere anyhow. So he is not saying... I pronounced a guilty verdict, and that's you. For he said, I have said before that you are in our hearts. And there's a purpose clause here that doesn't seem to come out in English. That is ista, which is into this, sort of like into this or into that, into the intent that you are in our hearts. And it's interesting, it says to die together and to live together. It's in that order in the Greek. The NIV reverses it. But I think that Paul has it for a purpose. So the question is whether die and live are spiritual or literal. (laughs) Okay? Normally you're not going to have die first and then live. And why not? Uh, The resurrection, uh, you know, Jesus Christ came to earth and then he died and then he lived. And then he lived. All right. And that's also an alchemical theme uh, in the Renaissance. And the Freemasons and all sorts of religions use that theme. You die first, you get reborn. The Greek mystery schools use it too. Okay. All right. If we take it to be spiritual, okay, if we take it to be spiritual, then to die would be be crucified with Christ. And to live, remember Paul says in Galatians, I'm crucified with Christ, but nevertheless I live. Life in the life I now live, so it can mean that. Or if it's literal, it could mean that we may actually serve God together. Then we die, and we'll all participate later in the resurrection and live. All right. I had a quote here from some scholars, Barnett, page three sixty-two. The second part of the sentence gives the purpose of the first. The Corinthians are in our hearts that they might die with and live with Paul. Once again, Paul uses the death-life motif of the gospel of the death and resurrection of Jesus. Here Paul appears to write at two levels of meaning. Literally, the ever-present possibility of his death through persecution, followed by resurrection, which the apostle faced on their behalf in pursuit of his ministry for them. And two, spiritually, the death to oneself, followed by a life lived for Christ, to which, as fellow believers, Paul and the Corinthians were committed. It's likely that Paul has both possibilities in mind. The point is that though through Paul's ministry, the Corinthians, his children through the gospel, shared with him the prospect of his death and life, whether considered in a literal or spiritual sense. So we don't have to limit it to one or the other. Both things are true in their own right. So, Robert, could you look up 1 Corinthians 4, 14 and 15? Okay. 1 Corinthians 4, 14 and 15. I do not write these things to shame you, but as my beloved children, I warn you, for though you might have 10,000 instructors in Christ, yet you do not have many fathers for in Christ Jesus I have begotten you through the gospel. Okay. Okay, so he's, he's appealing as a father to children. Garland says these words confirm his gentle disposition and goodwill and frankly confronting them. 
Because he has such affection for them, he has no interest in condemning them. He wants instead to boast about them. In fact, we cannot disparage those who are truly in our hearts. These Corinthians' children cause them enormous pride and incomparable joy, but because he truly loves them, he will frankly challenge them when they are in the wrong. His goal is not simply to negotiate a truce, but to correct their error. That's something that's important that's being lost, and I'm quite sure that Dean Gottscher will be we're talking about this on Saturday. The whole idea of instead of knowing the truth and proclaiming it, or if we don't know the truth, trying to find out what it is, and once we find out, embracing it. The alternative is uh, this whole consensus idea that you take two opposites and just keep talking it around until you end up with a synthesis or a third option that everybody can agree on. Another problem would be just not ever confronting anybody with the truth and just saying, why can't we just all get along? And this also comes into child raising and the lack of a father who takes authority in the home and tells children, no, this is wrong and this is the way it's going to be. So Saturday, that will undoubtedly be the topic. And we do need authority and we need the word of God to be the authority in our life. And if we get into this consensus building where I have my opinion, you have your opinion, somebody else has another one, and once we've all shared our opinion, that's the end of the discussion, let's go home. You get a situation where it's described in the Bible as ever learning and never coming to the knowledge of the truth. Yes. Okay, I marked this passage that Robert just read, uh, 1 Corinthians 4, uh, verses 14 through 15. And I'm going to read that on this coming Father's Day because I'm always longing for a father who will guide me in the right direction. And like you were alluding to, yes, it's, it's family-oriented. But like when I look for leadership in a church, I don't just look to the minister. I call you ministers pastor because that means to me like rabbi or teacher. Okay, but I look to, uh, this church is very special in that we have a board of deacons that hold this church together uh, and in the prism of the Bible. And it's this kind of thing, this leadership that hand in hand with the study of the Bible that is so comforting to me and that I cling to as a child of God. Because if I can't be a child of God, I'm nothing. Well, as a matter of fact, today's sermon is going to be on the Lord's Prayer, and we're going to talk about the fatherhood of God. <laughs> and uh, <laughs> so that will be our topic today. I, I, there's a whole section in Luke 11 that really deserves to be preached as a whole, but I couldn't do it. There was just too many concepts in the Lord's Prayer, so I'm going to have to do it in two parts. But there's a whole section on prayer that begins and ends with God as Father. And then in the discussion, in the meantime, describes that in terms of our prayers. Yes. I'd just like to share John MacArthur's study notes on this verse. He says, Paul had a forgiving heart. This is for verse 3. Paul had a forgiving heart rather than only condemning the Corinthians for believing the false teachers and rejecting him. Paul reminded them of his love for them and his readiness to forgive them. Mm-hmm. Amen. So it speaks of forgiveness to us. Yes, exactly. Father God. God is a forgiving God, and we need to be forgiving people. So that was Paul's point. Let's go uh, one more verse here. And that's in verse 4. It says here, Great is my confidence in you. Great is my boasting on your behalf. I am filled with comfort. I am overflowing with joy in all of our affliction. Uh, This section where Paul describes and defends his ministry, runs from 2 Corinthians 2.14 to 2 Corinthians 7 and verse 4. So, and then he'll come back to that theme later, after he talks about giving in chapters 8 and 9. There's also, it's about giving, and then he's going to go back to the super apostles and their visions and, and their boasts and 
in itself in verse in chapters 10, 11, and 12. So confidence is a great word in the Greek. Parousia can also be translated boldness. And the, the preposition is, the New American Standard for some reason translates its confidence in you. But if you look at who has the New King James, could you read the passage, Robert, from the New King James? Great is my boldness of speech toward you. Mm -hmm. Great is my boasting on your behalf. I am filled with comfort. I am exceedingly joyful in all our tribulations. Yeah. Boldness toward you is a far more literal translation than what we get in the New American Standard. So if you wanted to have two Bibles, two different translations to compare one to the other, between the New American Standard and the New King James, one of them usually gets it right. (laughs) <laughs> or, or maybe I could say it this way. I, I've used the New American Standard, and if I'm looking it up in the Greek and I see it doesn't get it right, generally, if I go over to the New King James, it does. Other than the New King James is based on the majority text, and so a lot of times it will have phrases that are in the Texas Receptus that aren't in the more modern critical text of the Greek. And But I check for that, too. So... Okay, so parousia, parousia, boldness, pros means toward. So it says literally, boldness toward you. Literally is what it says. Now, this parousia is something that Paul asked that the church pray for that he would have in the gospel. And boldness is something that's an important attribute for gospel preachers in... Acts, the same Greek word is used when Peter and the others were preaching the gospel and they were confronted by the Jewish authorities and told they had to stop preaching in the name of Jesus. Remember the story? They had done a healing and then they preached. They were not forbidden to heal, but they were forbidden to preach. Now, what, that tells us something. Okay? The point of healings is to point to the validity of the gospel itself. The healing was no threat to the Jewish authorities, but the preaching in Jesus' name definitely was. And it says that they beheld the boldness that these men had and realized they'd been with Jesus. They hadn't had a formal education at the feet of one of the famous Jewish rabbis, or maybe they did. Jesus was was called a rabbi. They sat at the feet of Jesus and was trained. So they had the best teacher ever. And they were bold. And when they were persecuted, they went into a prayer meeting. And Acts, let me find that. And and interesting that they were told they they couldn't preach. And they went into a prayer meeting in Acts chapter 4. And said this, verse 24, and when they heard this, okay, about the persecution, verse 18 says this, and they were summoned, they summoned them, they commanded them not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. All right, that's what they're told they can't do. Everything else is fine. You can heal everybody in Jerusalem if you want, just don't preach the gospel to us. All right? Here we go, verse 24. And when they heard this, they lifted their voices to God, this is the disciples, with one accord and said, O Lord, it is Thou who didst make the heaven and the earth and the sea and all that's in them, who by the Holy Spirit through the mouth of our father David, thy servant, did say, Why did the Gentiles rage and the peoples devise futile things? The kings of the earth took their stand. The rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against His Christ. So they quoted Scripture in their prayer. All right? So that's a good thing to do. For truly in this city there were gathered against thy holy servant Jesus, whom thou didst anoint, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, to, what, to do whatever thy hand and thy purpose predestined to occur. Interesting theology in the disciples' prayer, isn't it? All of those wicked things that were done had been predestined by God. But nevertheless, the ones doing it are morally culpable for doing it. Pregnant pause. 
Think about it. Okay, verse 29. And now, Lord, take note of the threats and grant that thy bondservants may speak thy word with all confidence or boldness. So many times in prayers in the New Testament concerning gospel preaching, the prayer was to have boldness or confidence. Okay, Scott. Didn't ask for protection, did they? No, they didn't ask for protection. They asked for boldness. Yeah. So why, why do you need to ask for boldness in such of a context? Because these are the authorities. These people are powerful. And we tend to wilt. Oh, yes. Oh, yes. The boldest person has a hard time not wilting when they get in the presence of higher-up dignitaries. Oh, yes, that's absolutely true. So one testimony I heard from Colson. He used to work for Nixon. Remember the whole story of Colson was Nixon's hatchet man, they used to call it, before he became a Christian. Anyhow, he, I read an essay by him where he told about people coming to the White House that were angry about something. They had some agenda, and they were going to, and, and when, when he'd meet them outside of the presidential Oval Office, they'd, well, what are you, what are you bringing to the president? What are you going to say? And they would say, well, we're going to tell him he's got to do something about the dairy farm plight or whatever it was they had. They, they were all fired up, and they were going to go in there and tell the president. They were bold. And he says, well, open the door, and they usher in to President Nixon behind his big desk and presidential seal, and he said they'd wilt. Oh, the president. Oh. And they'd forget what they were all upset about and bold, and they just, would just be overawed by his presence. Now, for that reason, as we're talking about this term parousia, boldness, that Paul said he had toward the Corinthians, which you can see by reading his letters, he was very bold to them. For that reason, and I wrote a little essay on this once for Worldview Network, for that reason, when Jesus said, when you're called before kings, don't think ahead of time what you're going to say. But the Holy Spirit will give you the words. Now, I think that's got a limited application. I've heard back in, uh, in the 70s when I was uh, in the more Pentecostal charismatic circles, there were those who took that to mean don't prepare for anything. Just get up in the pulpit and the Lord wants, wants God. And then you sort of have a stream of consciousness sermon. But Jesus wasn't saying don't ever prepare a sermon or don't ever study ahead of time when you're going to preach a sermon. But he said when you're, you're going to be brought before kings as a testimony of me. Don't think ahead of time the Holy Spirit is going to give you the words. And the reason is that if we think ahead of time, we'll be tempted to compromise. We'll, we'll be thinking, you know, this king could really help my cause. Right? The President of the United States, imagine if we got him on our side. Or whatever. And we'll forget about testifying about Jesus. We're supposed to testify about Jesus. So if you look at what happened when Paul was brought before Agrippa, he preached the gospel. All right. So prepare your sermon. <laughs> but if you're going to go before a king, just wait for the Holy Spirit to give you the words. Yes. On the topic of wilting, if there was a priest or a, a rabbi in his garb standing next to you, and if I came up to the priest, I could possibly wilt, but I wouldn't wilt in front of you because there's not, there's not the accoutrements of grandeur. There's not the seal on the floor. There's not the big desk. There's not all of that other stuff. And, and, and no Pope mobile. No Pope mobile. <laughs> yeah, no, we don't have it. That's good. Now, it makes a good point, though, because I think that's a, a valid reason to not do the pomp and circumstance thing. If, oh, let me see. All right, we'll return to this verse next week and finish it. There's a couple of things I wanted to discuss. We only got about 12 minutes. So I'm saving my, the topical stuff to the end, okay? I wanted to talk about feedback to being on the radio talking about Sola Scriptura. 
I was on Jan's show on the topic, and I was on Ingrid Schleter's show on the same topic. Okay, VCY America. And that is a, I wasn't even, I wasn't even directly trying to refute Rome, although by implication I obviously am. I was just trying to tell Protestants not to go back to Rome. Okay? And I get these angry emails challenging me. And uh, from from Protestants who became Roman Catholic and from Roman Catholics. And they are just throwing these arguments. Well, you can't prove Sola Scriptura. You can't prove Sola Scriptura. The church gave you the Bible. And, you know, it's on and on and on. And, and prove, prove this. Prove your Sola Scriptura. Prove it to me. And I've been challenged so much. that That's what we're going to have to do. Protestants will not accept the principles of the Reformation. They will not. If you say to a Protestant of any stripe, sola scriptura was, one, was the formal theological principle of the Reformation, which is what I said, and that therefore if we are expecting people to believe what we say and to teach anything is binding on the church, we can do so if and only if we can prove that this is a valid implication or application of Scripture. That we've interpreted the Scripture and we applied it, then it's binding. If that's not the case, then we can't bind people. So therefore, what are we saying? Well, there's no man on earth who can stand up and say, Thus saith the Lord, whatever he says, and we're bound to obey him. That's what set off the firestorm. Not just with Roman Catholics, but with so-called Protestants. So no longer does the church seem, as far as I can see, even believe in this. So what we have to do is go all the way back and rehash the argument from day one, right back to 90 A.D., and and prove that God has spoken through Christ and his apostles, and God has spoken through the apostles and prophets that are the foundation of the church, and therefore that's why we have Sola Scriptura. Now, they come back and say, well, you can't prove this, and you can't prove that, and you can't prove the other thing. And I told this one guy finally, you're mesmerized. Literally, you're mesmerized. Because take the New Testament. Let's just take our Bible. We're just talking, this, this discussion made me think about this. All right? Let's just read this. And what we see in here is we're going to create a college of cardinals who are going to parade around in scarlet robes and pointy red hats, and these guys are going to have greater status than ordinary Christians. Now, think about that. That's why I said, you're mesmerized. There's no way that any of this was Christ's idea or any of his apostles. These are innovations that men did, totally contrary to the spirit of Jesus Christ and his own teachings, and I'm going to prove it to you right now. See, I had to get this off my chest. Those guys, those guys won't listen to me, so maybe you will. All right? We don't need cardinals. Did God institute cardinals or archbishops? No, no way. Okay, here's what it says. Matthew 23. You turn with me to Matthew 23. And think about the whole idea of what we're talking about, the being in awe in somebody's presence. Those people that went to Yankee Stadium... To, to see the Pope, they're mesmerized. That's the best word I can think about. They're mesmerized. They're in awe for whatever reason. I'm not in awe. I just think it's pathetic. Here's what it says. Then Jesus spoke to the multitudes and to his disciples, saying, The scribes and Pharisees have seated themselves in the chair of Moses. Therefore, all they tell you, do it, observe. Let me comment on that. Moses wrote binding scripture. Moses was the mediator of the Old Covenant. Moses spoke for God. So if they accurately teach Moses, and Moses spoke for God, then that's binding. And so I told this one Catholic, if the Pope tells me something that's a valid implication of Scripture, it's binding on me. I'll affirm that. They said, well, don't you believe the Nicene Creed? Yes, because the Nicene Creed contains valid implications of Scripture. It's binding not because a council said it, but it's binding because it's truth from Scripture. Okay, so 
if, if the Pope seats himself in the seat of Christ, which he does, and he speaks accurately what Christ has said, that's just as binding as a Protestant or anybody else said it. So I'm, uh, but he can only speak for God that far, no further. Nothing beyond what anybody else could. All right, now let's go on. And they tie up heavy loads and lay them on men's shoulders, but they themselves are unwilling to move them with so much as a finger. That's what happens when people claim to have status. I've got status. I have to be pampered and have the pomp, and, and, I, and I'm, I don't want to be treated like ordinary Christians. That is just dead wrong. It's wrong for a pastor, it's wrong for an elder, it's wrong for a deacon, and it's wrong for a bishop or a cardinal or anybody else. It's flat out wrong. But they do all their deeds to be noticed by men, for they broaden their phylacteries and lengthen the tassels of their garments. Now, if you saw a guy walking down Louisiana over here at St. Louis Park, and he had a scarlet robe and a big pointy scarlet hat and and a big staff, would that draw attention to you? Would that person be noticed? Okay, why would you dress like that other than you want to be noticed? You want to look at the status I have. All right? So that's wrong. It's just flat out wrong. And all you want to keep emailing me, you have swallowed a camel. And you're straining gnats and you're swallowing camels right and left. And all this pomp and money and vaulted cathedrals gilded with gold is not the idea of Jesus Christ. It says here, they love the place of honor. They lengthen their phylacteries. They want to be noticed. They want respectful greetings in the marketplace. But do not be called rabbi, for one is your teacher, and you're all brothers. All are brothers. We all have the same status. And do not call anyone on earth your father, for one, in a religious sense. Here, you have an actual literal father. For one is your father, he is in heaven. I'm going to talk about that today in the sermon. You have one father, he's in heaven. Do not be called leaders, for one is your leader, that is Christ. But the greatest among you shall be your servant. Whoever exalts himself shall be humbled, and whosoever humbles himself shall be exalted. For woe to you, scribes, Pharisees, hypocrites, because you shut off the kingdom of heaven from men. For you do not enter in yourself, and you do not allow those who are entering to go in. That applies to the Roman Catholic Church, and I'm not embarrassed to say so. They shut off the kingdom of heaven to men by telling them they have to do works, 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 and after you've done all the works, do more works, and then you die and somebody else has to do works for you. How are you going to enter the kingdom of God? Well, we're not going to tell you. We're going to shut it off. Woe to you! Scribes, Pharisees, hypocrites, devour widows' houses while for pretense you make long prayers and receive greater condemnation. And so on and so forth. Now, I'm not saying that any of this kind of stuff is justified when Protestants do it, if we call, if we can use the term anymore. And I'm not, you have the Pope on one hand and Yankee Stadium and you got the prosperity teacher on the tarmac in front of his private jet. The same spirit of exaltation of one man over others lies at the heart of all such things. I grew up in a Methodist church, and uh, in the Methodist church they, they had a robe for the preacher, and, and uh, we weren't exactly, I mean, the Methodist church was nothing like uh, a Catholic church, but it had just a little bit of that sort of stuff, and when I was ordained in the ministry, my dad said, well, you need to get a robe. And my dad was Methodist. I said, I will not. He says, why not? I said, I, if I had to wear a robe, I would never preach the gospel. I would not get into the pulpit. I refuse. Why? Because I believe it would be a sin. Because I'm saying, look at my status compared to these people out here. I said, I don't have any status that anybody else doesn't have that's a Christian. And my dad just couldn't understand that. But I was dead serious about it. Okay, Troy. That's my little rant. Thank you for listening. Okay. We went to a funeral this last week, and uh, they had us recite 
you know, the Apostles' Creed, and they, they gave, uh, they, they venerated and they glorified the Holy Catholic Church. So I went and talked to the, the pastor after this, and he was a Lutheran pastor. And I said, well, what about the Reformation? And he said, well, this is the universal creed that goes back to, you know, way back to the first or second century. But, uh, yeah, he had the robes on too, but they really are going back to Rome. That, well, the Catholic, yeah, Catholic there, to, de- to defend the creed, the Catholic term is small c, and it means, it would be like in Hebrews, the church universal and uh, names enrolled in heaven. But I wouldn't want to use it now because it's been poisoned by church history. Yes, Mr. Smith. I went to a funeral, too. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Catholic funeral. Okay. The priest started out by saying, when you were baptized, that's all you needed. You were, you you were, needed. You were yeah. in heaven after baptism. Well, so then why, why are people in purgatory if they're in heaven if they're baptized? I don't get that. That doesn't make any sense. Okay. Now... I just wanted to get this off my chest because these emails are getting under my skin. Yeah. All right. Um, sometimes we need to just back off a little ways. I mean, you get in there in the forest and you can't see the trees or the trees, you can't see the forest or whatever. We need just to back off and just look at the Bible and say, is this what Christ had in mind? Is this what the disciples believed? Is this how things were in the book of Acts? Is this how Paul comported himself? And, uh, and what we actually see is the opposite. The opposite. Those people who humbled themselves like Paul did and did not come in town with some royal entourage and did not dress himself in a manner that made everybody think that he had some privileged status, even though he was an apostle. He didn't want to just assert that. He, he did, but he preferred that they would just listen to the gospel. And he was, a, he was not less than any of the most eminent apostles, Paul said himself. So may God help us, and none of us are immune to the same temptations. Uh, they, they befall humans. And so may God just give us grace to have two things. Let me close with this. There's two things we need. And we need to have them simultaneously. Parousia, boldness in the gospel, and humility. We need boldness and humility. And those aren't opposite. Because if our boldness is boldness that God's given us for the gospel, but because we've not prayed for it, we're not bold in ourselves. We realize that we're sinners saved by grace. But if we know that what we're proclaiming is the Word of God, we can have all the boldness in the world world, because we didn't make this up. The Lord gave it to us. So we're going to see you upstairs in the half hour. God bless you.